invite you to come to Joshua chapter 12. We're about to transition into the second part of the book, God willing, next week. But chapter 12 brings us to this summary of the conquest of the land and peoples of Canaan from Moses to Joshua. You wouldn't be too off base if you know this chapter well already or have looked at it maybe ahead of time to think that technically couldn't you just skip over this chapter? It seems like it's just tedious on the surface after all in verses 14 and 15, for example. The king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adalam won. These aren't verses that wrap you up in a warm blanket of assurance or anything like that. It's just a list, it seems like. In the first six verses tonight, we'll read again of Israel's defeat of Sihon and Og east of the Jordan. Uh, Sihon's domain covered most of the southern half of the Transjordan, and then the giant Og um, covered most of the northern half, his region or territory. The story of their defeat was given way back in Numbers 21, 21 to 35, while Moses' commentary on it was given later in Deuteronomy 2, 26 to 311. And, and you keep seeing Sihon and Og pop up in the story of Israel. It's, it's much like Pontius Pilate ends up in the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is not inspired Scripture, but the church has been confessing those truths, orthodox truths of Scripture, for over 1,600 years. And the name of Pontius Pilate, of all people, pops up in it. The defeat of Sihon and Og appears again and again and again in Israel's praise, uh, Israel's praises and their prayers. You have it here. You have it, um, we've seen it in historical books. You have it in Psalm 135.11 and 136.19 and 20. You have it in Nehemiah 9.22, etc., etc. So, why bring them up again here? Isn't it Can't you just let sleeping kings lie, so to speak? When God's Word recounts what has taken place, and when it takes the care to repeat these things again and again, this isn't just a list of kings conquered or land taken. Now, we're not going to, I hope, do injustice to it tonight and try to bring out all kinds of stuff from it. It is a list, but it isn't tedious even though it feels that way to read it. It is a statement of God's steady, ongoing, great, particular, unfailing faithfulness. By faithfulness to His promises, we find in chapter 12, God guards the unity of His people and He prepares them for the coming final victory. Let me pray and we'll look at it here. Father, thank You once more for this opportunity, this blessing that we have to open Your Word together tonight. Lord, I pray that You would work through this inspired text that You promised us is profitable for us, for preaching, for teaching, O God. May we learn what You would have us learn by the power and presence of Your Holy Spirit in us. Please help me speak to that end. Help everyone to listen intentionally to that end. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen the first six verses here. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Hesbon and ruled from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon 
and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chenareth eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, those are giants, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edri and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salaka and all Bashan to the boundary of the Jeshurites and the Maakathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord and the people of Israel, defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, one reason the writer brings back up all these defeated kings is to guard the unity of God's people, to keep any of his people from being left out and from being forgotten. If you can remember, way back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, there were two and a half eastern tribes. These would have been the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and then the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were worried that the day might come, as Israel takes Canaan, that they would be forgotten and thought of as not really Israel, technically, by the western tribes, that maybe the majority of Israel that will settle in Canaan proper would exclude them from what they consider to be the true remnant, the true Israel that's all together these ten tribes. For this reason, the author of Joshua includes in his record of conquered kings the record of the conquest of Sihon and Og before they came in to Canaan. It's as if he's saying, remember now, while you're sitting in conquered Canaan, that God conquered east of the Jordan also. Don't forget that Israel lives over there too. How well do we need to hear the sentiment of these verses today in the church? There are always the formal differences that exist between churches or denominations, right? Sometimes in a town there can be not necessarily a rivalry, but in, in smaller towns like ours you can have churches that are um, competing or that kind of have a, a cold shoulder towards one another. I've, not saying that about us here. I'm saying it can happen. It normally happens in smaller towns because you're more aware of each other, right? In cities, it's a little different. It's not better. It's just different. But you have those formal differences between churches or between denominations. We confess the same Lord with so many, but we might in our heads relegate our brothers and sisters in other denominations or churches we don't agree with to a lesser place in our thinking. You know, yes, they're a part of the body of Christ, but they're not the better part. You know, They're not us. Arminians and Calvinists might do this. Baptists and Charismatics might do this. I grew up Nazarene, as many of you know, before we became Baptists in 1996. I, I cannot tell you how disparagingly we spoke of Baptists in particular. Nazarenes, at least... Growing up where I did, I'm not talking about the one on First Street. I don't know those folks, but um, man, we, we, our whole thing was: you guys believe you can do whatever you want and still go to heaven. That's what we thought. And so, if I, I remember seeing the deacons at First Baptist Church of Dresden, so I, I came to find out they were deacons because it was a small town. They were smoking, and I was just scandalized. Like, well, they're not going to heaven; they're smoking. So you can think, you know. Sometimes this can even happen in a local fellowship of believers, though, in a church, when for whatever reason, there are some church members that they aren't really a part of the in crowd. Churches can get divided between older and younger. They can divide for economic or social reasons. You can have the ins and the outs. 
Uh, you can have, you know, maybe there's some folks with a scarlet letter on themselves in a church. Maybe they're, uh, they've been divorced or something, or, and so maybe they're not a, um, you know, thought of as, as a part of, of, as others are. They're not a part of the in crowd. Maybe you divide over the years because when there was that one big issue, that one big fight, you voted this way on it and the rest of us voted this way on it and so there's a divide there. And Or maybe they haven't attended as long as some of the others and so those that have attended a long time think of the people that haven't as not really a part yet. They haven't really earned their stripes and all these types of things. Isn't it funny though my thinking when I was a young man and but maybe it continues as we age. Isn't it funny how we all forget that the only type of person God recruits is a loser? Why, why, why do we forget that? Is there anything more oxymoronic than a Christian with a, with a puffed up chest? It, it, it doesn't even make sense. This is precisely why Paul told the arrogant Corinthians who thought so highly of themselves because of who had discipled them or who had taught them or what they had done. And he reminds them in particular that God shows what is foolish in the world. God shows what is weak in the world. God shows what is low and despised in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28. And he's, he's telling them, I'm talking about you. Beloved, we cannot forget about each other. We cannot cast each other aside for reasons that if we're honest, don't really merit such separation or such cold shoulders towards one another. How quick we are to set one another aside or to scratch each other off our list. And we just, we get used to this and we, and we do it and we don't even question it or repent of it or take it seriously. There are people within the body of Christ that we can't stand. We couldn't sit down at a table and have dinner with. This is crazy. God would not have any of His people be forgotten. So, He saved us all by grace, apart from any works or any worth on our own, and chooses us to be His own, because each of us was in fact the least likely to pick Him on our own. This is at least a part of the reason for remembering the kings defeated by Moses in Joshua 12. But the author is also concerned with vindicating the fidelity of God's promises in verses 7 to 24, so we pick it up there. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Balgad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmoth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adalim, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimrah, Maron, one. The king of Akshath, one. The king of Ta'anak, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. 
the king of Jogneum and Carmel won, the king of Dor and Naphath Dor won, the king of Goyim and Galilee won, the king of Tersia won, in all 31 kings. Now, the, the bulk of these verses, obviously, is this listing of 31 conquered kings. That's how many kings Joshua conquered. One commentator says the list only appears monotonous. I don't often quote John Calvin anymore, but this was very insightful from his comments on Joshua 12. But though each of those now summarily mentioned was previously given more in detail, there is very good reason for here placing before our eyes, as it were, a living picture of the goodness of God, proving that there had been a complete ratification and performance of the covenant made with Abraham, as given in the words, Unto thy seed I will give this land. Genesis 12, 7, 13, 15, and 20, 18. That's actually what you're reading in this list. Is that when God said to Abraham, Unto you and your seed I will give this land, this is the recounting of how that promise came to pass. Joshua 12, 7-24 emphasizes that God's original promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis 15, 18-21, has been fulfilled. And Joshua makes a point later on to say that not one promise of land fell short. They got it. They had it in Joshua for a little while. God doesn't owe land anymore. They had it. They lost it. Plain and simple. This is God's unfailing word, the proof of His great faithfulness after all these years. As Paul observed about it in Romans 4.21, God was able to do what He had promised. So if you can read all these names with that as the backdrop, that that's what's actually being told here, then it's not as tedious as it is exciting. The king of Tepua won. The king of Pepper won. One commentator says these words aren't an excerpt from a dull archive. They are the lyrics of a song. This is Almost Israel's version of the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That, that's, that's what this is. God's Word always proves true. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Let's also consider that this line-for-line -line listing of conquered kings let Israel literally itemize one line at a time God's goodness to them. That king, that king, that king, that king. So it isn't monotonous. It's thanksgiving. Try to read it in that framework. And it isn't general either. It's not general thanksgiving. Thank you for helping us conquer all these kings. This is very particular. Each and every conquered king is specified here. Each is a sign of God's power and a cause for Israel's praise. You helped us 31 times win the victory. When we were one nation against the whole territory, H.L. Ellison is a biblical scholar, professor, he's a missionary, speaker, and author in the mid-1900s. He said, it would be unfair to suggest that the church is unwilling to thank God for all His many mercies. But on the whole, it is unwilling to indulge in detailed and specific thanks. If we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see how much God has really achieved. 
we don't tend to keep track like the book of Joshua does, line for line, itemizing. Like how many times, this is the first thing I guess that popped in my head, how many times have you prayed that God would protect you on a trip and you made it there and back safely? How many times in your life has that happened? What if you had a record of it? Could you just imagine for a minute what that would look like? If you had a little journal or something. At the time we traveled to Florida, to Kentucky, to Colorado, to Indiana. To, I mean, you could just, man, every single time. If we were to take just a quick look at the Psalms, we find that itemizing God's goodness, so to speak, seems to be the method of biblical faith. That's how, that was God's means of them holding on. Remember, remember, recount, 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 list it out. And I don't want to be legalistic about it, like you have to keep this track and have a journal or, or you're not thankful. Not at all. I'm saying it for your encouragement that, that maybe if, if we were to be more mindful of how often God comes through, rather than focusing on when it seems He hasn't, I wonder what it might do for our hearts, for my own heart, if I did that. When faith gives thanks in detail, it's nurtured, it's encouraged, it energizes our hearts to rightfully expect that even more mercy is going to come. God is not done being merciful to us. He's not done being faithful to us. He's not done providing. He's not done blessing. I completely understand, of course, that being respectful of others and of time in public prayer and things like that, you almost have to generalize, right? It's... it's um, you know, thank you, God, for your many blessings. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But what if in our own hearts or on our own time we literally named them? Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for this and for this and for this and for this and for this. I, I prayed for years and will continue to when my kids go off to public school that, that they would be safe, that God would protect them. And to this day, they still are. You say, well, what if one day they're not? It doesn't mean God wasn't faithful to me. But imagine if I had a record of that, that how many times I asked God to do something and He did it. Maybe just one or two at a time, you know, to start with. I don't know. All the things we ask God to do that He has done, all the needs that He has met. When was the last time you literally went hungry because you had no food? that you slept on the street because you had no place to sleep. Right? Just think about things like this. Again, we, we, it, we tend to focus or measure on big things that we're asking for. And, and when God doesn't come through on these big things, these monumental things, we question His faithfulness to us, His commitment to us. And yet, what is He doing every single day? Every single day. On, I, I know it's, my goodness, what, 22 years ago now? this September. But on September 10th, nobody was thanking God that the sun was coming up on a sinful New York day after day after day after day after day. Nobody was thanking God that even heathens eat and enjoy their lives. And not saying everybody in New York City was a heathen, but you know what I mean. The, the rain was falling on the just and on the unjust every day. And then later in the day on 9-11 and 9-12, where was God? Where was God? Where was God? He's been there every day. All the needs that He has met. All the times He did come through. 
what might it do to our hearts to remember in detail sometimes all that God has done for us like we have here in Joshua 12. By faithfulness to his promises, God guards the unity of his people and he prepares them for the coming final victory. Since chapter 12 gives us a summary to date of the conquest of Canaan, and it appears that God is interested in doing such a thing, we would do well to see it as a foreshadowing of another victory that is yet to come. The victory God achieved over Sihon and Og and all the rest of Canaan's kings is both a preview and a pledge of the day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever in Revelation 11:15, God has also promised you land. God has promised you a new heaven and a new earth built on top of this one one day, beloved. And when you see line for line that when God says He's going to give victory, He does, you remember, oh, that's right, that's coming for me too. Every single time we read a list of victories won in Scripture, of God's line-by-line faithfulness to His promises in the process of history, just remember, these are partial portrayals of His coming final victory over all His enemies, over even sin and death and hell and the end of history. This is meant to strengthen us. What, What do we get out of Joshua? We get reminded that when God promises victory, you get it. meant to fortify the hearts of His suffering people in these days as we long for the great finale and the closing of the curtain on this earth as it is today. Sometimes it would be nice if all this would just end. I don't mean that pessimistically or fatalistically. I know there is so much here to love and to enjoy. There's so much at stake for others when it comes to eternity. But beloved, when, when you have the gift of being able to be with someone, a faithful servant of Christ who is on their last leg, and you get to see someone ache for it to be over, take that to heart. Take that to heart. I was visiting with a friend on Wednesday lost his life a little over a year ago. He's not here. I don't think he would mind, but I'm talking about Jim Hartle. Um, For some, they long to be with our Lord and long to be with the ones that have gone on before much more than they would like to stay. And it isn't that they want to die necessarily. Or they're in such despair that they don't care anymore. It's it's that somehow in the course of their lives, they have come to realize that it would be better to depart and be with Him. It would always be better for that to happen. I don't want anybody I love to leave. I don't. I don't want to lose a single one of them. And I would be devastated if I did. But at the same time, if they get to depart and be with Him and all this and all that could happen here for them is over, is that really the worst thing that could happen? 
there are some dear elderly saints, even in our church, whose suffering has been so prolonged and whose bodies are physically so weary that they're praying for the Lord to just take them. One dear sister, every time I talk to her or visit with her, every time, I don't know why the Lord is... I just wish He would take me. I pray all the time that the Lord would take me. She wants to be with the Lord. She wants to be with her husband who's gone on before. That's not a sin. That's not weakness. Right? If, if my dear wife, God forbid, please, went before me, I, I think I'd just kind of want to be with her. And I know we won't be married over there, but that's not sad in God's reckoning. But that, that, that's not a weakness. When, when you're near a saint who's done and ready to be with the Lord, that's not a weakness. That's, that's the reason we lived anyway. It's embracing the reality that we were made for. It's, it's, it's to be honest about the ache inside of us. It is a, not necessarily for the person in pain and in suffering. Right. And all the horrible things that people can go through that prolongs their death. That's not good at all. But to be near somebody that, and you can hear, you can see it, that they're ready to be with Him. Beloved, take that to heart. What if that's how we were all the time? I wonder what our lives would be like if all the time we were like... But like when you look at Paul's life, Paul was such an anomaly. Like you don't meet people like that. You know, we're, we're going we're, we're gonna to torture you. Well, uh, I don't count the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. So do it. We're going to kill you. Well, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, right. When you come to these lists of victories in the Bible, these itemizations, just don't necessarily be so quick to skip over them if that's the temptation. If it's the temptation. For they are line by line, itemized reminders of the fact that one day you will see the Son of God face to face. You will see Him. In that land where they need no sign. For he will be the light. 